Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now T O X N O W dot O R G and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, and welcome podcast listeners to this episode of Talks Talk, a regular podcast from the Division of Toxicology at the UMass Department of Emergency Medicine. We're here to talk about toxicology as it relates to emergency medicine physicians and others interested in toxicology. I'm Matt Zuckerman. I'm a uh, fellow at the University of Massachusetts uh, Toxicology Program. With me today is Ed Boyer. Hey, I'm Ed Boyer. I'm the training director of the Toxicology Fellowship Program here at UMass in Worcester, Massachusetts. And also with me today is Stephanie Weiss. Hi, I'm Steph, and I'm a first-year resident at UMass. So the reason why we're here, though, is we wanted to have this podcast to talk about um, uh, toxicology, emergency medicine, and it's sort of that fun sex, drugs, and rock and roll part of EM. But kind of without the sex. Yeah, kind of without the sex. It's sometimes associated with sex. But it's mainly just drugs. Mainly just drugs. First up on this episode of Tox Talk, uh, we'll be talking about a new drug that uh, I think uh, a lot of us have seen already and that more of us will continue to see. Next up... Our very own Scott Glazier, second-year resident at UMass, will be uh, giving a Tox Pearl for residents and uh, others alike. And then uh, finally, back to Ed, Stephanie, and I, where we'll be talking about some talks in the news. In our first segment today, I really I wanted to talk about a, a patient that I had seen recently. This was a young woman that came into the ED. She was actually, I shouldn't say came in, she was brought in. Uh, she was found uh, agitated. Um, and when she came in, she was tachycardic, she was diaphoretic, she was uh, hypertensive, and, and just incredibly agitated and paranoid and did not want to be there. Just very, very difficult to control. Sounds like she was on sympathomimetics. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, it does sound very much like a sympathomimetic. However, she was incredibly agitated, um, and it, it was prolonged. It lasted really for hours and hours, which is a lot longer than, than some of the typical sympathomimetics we would expect um, in terms of uh, crack and, and cocaine. And, um, and the paranoia was especially acute. And so actually what she ended up being on was something that she had gotten online, which re- recently we've been seeing a lot more cases of, and it's known as bath salts, uh, which is kind of a loose term. Uh, the substance is MDPV, and essentially uh, it wasn't really common, maybe six cases in the uh, DEA uh, National Forensic Lab System. And then in 2010, there were 160 cases, and then this year there have been hundreds and hundreds of cases. And uh, one of the first big case series describing this sort of outbreak, uh, if you want to use kind of the uh, the local news terminology, there's an outbreak of bath salts, uh, was in, in the March 2011 uh, MMR. WR, the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, uh, where there was a case series of 35 people, largely from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, uh, who had come in uh, agitated, tachycardic, delusional, hallucinating, um, and uh, most of these people had purchased bath salts from surrounding uh, head shops or online. They have head shops in the Upper Peninsula? 
There isn't much else to do in the Upper Peninsula. See, I was thinking there's only one, a few ways to stay warm while you're ice fishing. All right. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. So, and these, in this, in this case series, there were 35 people. A lot of them came in. A number of them were able to be, uh, not all at once, Ed. Okay. They came in over a period of time. I see. It was not a group ingestion of bath salts. And the, the toxicity of these people ranged from just uh, needing symptomatic treatment for tachycardia, hypertension, and agitation, um, to actually rhabdomyolysis and uh, myocarditis. One of them actually even died, um, and it, in the autopsy results from that particular patient, they found especially high levels of MDPV. And so this was sort of the first report case series of... Um, of the basalt usage. Um, and at, since then, there have been other reports in the popular press, the Washington Post and ABC and other news sources. There's actually an upcoming article coming out in the uh, Journal of Medical Toxicology that will be discussing uh, some of these legal highs in terms of K2 and, and basalts and, and uh, other things. I think that's in press currently. But when I, when I saw this uh, woman and I said, you know, what are you on? And I heard that she was on bath salts. Yeah, like if you're an emergency physician and you're working in the emergency department, you have somebody comes in, you know, it's one of the ways that you can actually make your shift more interesting is just spend a couple of minutes talking to them about what they did and where they get it and what they find out about. Yeah, you know, like a lot of times it'll be, you know, like a fruitless conversation, but occasionally they'll walk up and give you something really interesting and they'll say, I'm using something like bath salts. Um, and it was something I wasn't horribly familiar with. I went to a resource that I often use. It's Arrowid, uh, E-R-O-W-I-D dot org. It's a website. Um, Stephanie, you've used Arrowid before, right? I have. Okay. What, what, what would you call I it? I mean, I haven't used it, but <laughs> I, I've read it. Yeah, I don't, but I have a friend who has. Exactly. I know, I know some people who use Arrowid. Okay. And what is Arrowid? Arrowhead is a website where people can post their experiences with using various drugs, and they post the kind of recipes that they make to synthesize the drugs. They post their the dosages that they take, and, and uh, they're able to do things like figure out to give themselves a loading dose and then give themselves maintenance doses afterwards. They talk about the side effects that they have. They talk about things to avoid, things to do to improve the trip or get rid of the side effects. It's a really interesting site. It's, it's an encyclopedia. It is. It's, it's, an, like enci a, it's an encyclopedia of drug, of you know, like psychoactive substances. Like a wiki. A wiki. Yeah. Arrowwood works a, a little bit different way than you know, like a, a, a wiki uh, resource might. You can submit, or users can submit experience reports, but then one of the owners, either Earth or Fire or Arrowwood, will... Review it for accuracy, make sure that it's an interesting and uh, most likely accurate case report. If it's a uh, substance that they're not used to uh, seeing or something that's fairly new or uncommon, they may have other individuals take it through a sort of a peer review process. So you can't think that just because something gets submitted into Arrowhead, it winds up on Arrowhead. Even if it's submitted to Arrowhead and it winds up there, it may wind up in a, in a slightly edited form, but regardless, it is an outstanding resource in terms of the names um, and effects of psychoactive substances. It's a great resource, particularly for emergency physicians. Right, because, I mean, we're just, we're just not cool enough to know what, what's down with the kids nowadays. Well, Stephanie. Yes. Stephanie has, apparently, friends, quote-unquote, who, who friends. might use the website. I know people. And she knows people. <laughs> I can verify this. She does know people. <laughs> This is when you hear people, quote-unquote, experimenting with drugs and you imagine clipboards and white coats. This is 
this is the clipboard, so my codes. But no, uh, it's a great website. It, it's ostensibly, I, I think, mainly for harm reduction and side effects. And in terms of harm reduction, it can be very beneficial because it'll talk about, you know, don't take this particular illicit substance if you're on this antidepressant or other medication when there was uh, recent cases of uh, cocaine that were contaminated with levamisole and people were um, necrosing off their ears and noses and things, there was a warning on the website. And so it can be helpful in that uh, sense. And I like it. It just can be a fun website to peruse. When you look at Arrowhead for, um, specifically for bath salts, and in this case, while bath salts have been around for a long period of, of time, their most recent iteration is mainly MDPV, which is an uh, analog of uh, amphetamine and MDMA. It says, quote, that it's an uncommon stimulant with a short history of human use, known for its tendency to cause compulsive redosing, and some users report sexual arousal as an effect. I'm sure that has nothing to do with its popularity of use. Uh, and that sometimes it can cause hallucinations and psychotic behavior at high doses or with repeated use. You know, that's one of the first things that Arrowwood would present on it, but if you scroll farther down through the uh, through the webpage, you get to the experience reports, which are, you know, like just descriptions of individuals and what they, um, what they uh, felt, what they experienced, in some cases what they endured when they used a particular substance. And, the, you know, like the, um, the material on um, uh, MDPV is actually quite interesting because, you know, it's, it's a stimulant, and you would expect people to behave as if they'd received a stimulant. So when you get down to the case reports, there's one here which I think is just fantastic. Now, what I'm about to read is all one sentence. So I'm going to try to get through it in one breath. We'll see how well I do. But keep in mind, this is one sentence from one from one writer. He says, I think of myself as one of the most responsible neurochemical researchers out there, well above average intelligence quote, and I have an uncanny ability to deny myself administration of even the most addictive substances. I've tried every chemical that sounded even remotely interesting that I could get my hands and nose on in the past, excluding crack, heroin, and other potent opiates. They scare the hell out of me because of what happens to those who do them, and never, ever have I lost control of my behavior, motor control, decision-making, and what I would describe as my soul, like that which was induced by this evil, evil powder known as MDPV, molecular demonic poison e vil. I'm not exaggerating. Now taking a break to compose myself and hopefully regain muscular control can finish typing this without mistyping every word and having hit backspace after every word which so far I've misspelled and retyped just about every single word I have typed. The ones that are still misspelled because I tried to retype them once more and I gave up. I'm going to take a break for a couple of hours, drink some water and take some supplements. Uh, so this guy goes on for another few pages in terms of writing what happened to him. And ultimately he wound up calling his boss at 2 a.m. saying, uh, boss, I'm not going to be coming in to work tomorrow. So you know, word to the wise, if you're a resident, first, don't, probably, don't, don't, don't take MDPV. And if you do, don't call your residency director or your clinical director uh, at 2 a.m. to say you won't be in the next morning because they might think something's wrong. Especially since my residency director is a toxicologist. <laughs> Here he is. Yes. So never, never call your boss at 2 a.m. And if your employees are calling you at 2 a.m. to tell you they might not be in tomorrow and you happen to live in the Upper Peninsula, then this might be related. And so there's been an increased incidence of these cases, you know, in Louisiana, Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, Oklahoma. Mississippi. Mississippi. Um, Mississippi. 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 And in 2009, there were, there were two reports and then 161 reports and now hundreds of reports. And the pharmacology of this drug is actually not that brand new. It just, just as with everything in medicine, uh, everything is, is always, uh, just a new iteration of something we're already familiar with. And specifically with this, the MDPV is structure related to, uh, uh cathinone, uh, and methamphetamine and MDMA. 
or mephedrine. And um, cathinone is something it's something you're pretty familiar with, Ed, aren't you? I'm not, but I have friends who are. Um, so, so cathinone and the other, <laughs> no, cathinone and the other plants are, are other um, phenethylamines that are related to it are derived from a plant called cot. It's a uh, East African plant. It's indigenous to um, Yemen, Ethiopia, and uh, Somalia in particular. It's a naturally occurring, so it's a natural product. So the leaves will be chewed by individuals to get a to get a mild stimulant effect. The the the, the, the uh, the products or the outcomes from cod are usually just a very conversational type experience for folks. But when you tinker around with the chemical structure, when you change its appearance, like in MDPV, you've got part of it which looks like ecstasy, you've got part of it uh, which looks a little bit like methamphetamine. So you get some serotonergic effects, you get some adrenergic effects, you increase your norepinephrine-based neurotransmission, you increase your, increase your dopaminergic neurotransmission, so the dopaminergic neurotransmission may drive repetitive dosing. The norepinephrine or adrenergic dosing may drive the stimulant effect, and for the individuals who experience hallucinations while taking it, perhaps that's a serotonergic effect. But it's it kind of combines all these things into pharmacologically and toxicologically one, one pretty interesting package. And and just to take a step backwards, this is kind of a nice opportunity to discuss kind of some core some core clinical toxicology and, and emergency medicine is is because uh, essentially this is similar to amphetamine and a lot of these are amphetamine or cathinone derivatives and amphetamine is not new it's been used for everything from asthma to weight loss to even Japanese soldiers during World War II were were using it um, and nowadays we seem to use it for ADHD although how giving a stimulant to someone whose brain is already a little hyperactive works is, is beyond me, but I'm not a pediatrician or a psychiatrist. It always seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? It does, but it seems to work. Um, it seems to work. It's like giving GHB to people to keep them awake when they have narcolepsy. Yes. That's what I'm doing wrong. <laughs> and so essentially for years and years, people have been using amphetamines, and then finally the, the federal government sort of realized that they might not be good for people, and around the 1970s, they passed federal legislation to, to schedule different drugs and, and um, scheduled these uh, drugs, and so they became less available. Although then some smart chemists came along and figured out that they added a methyl group here or a clearing group there. Clearing group there that, that then these illegal substances, these toxic illegal substances, suddenly became legal and, and possibly more fun. Um, and essentially uh, with amphetamine, just in terms of how it acts, so uh, we talked about how amphetamine is a uh, sympathomimetic, and so it causes uh, increased uh, dopamine and norepi ex- extracellularly, which is which is why you feel good. And it does this through a few different ways. So there's a transporter on the cellular membrane which normally reuptakes norepinephrine to to decrease the extracellular levels. After it's released, it reuptakes it. And the transporter actually can work both ways. And so with amphetamine, the transporter can can do antiport, where as an as an amphetamine molecule is transported into the cell, norepinephrine molecule is transported out of the cell. Uh, additionally, after norepi is produced, it's usually um kept in vesicles in the cell. It's not just free-floating. And the vesicles uh, keep it trapped, and normally one of the ways that they do this is they are acidic, and that causes the uh, norepi to be charged, and it can't cross outside of the membrane. But amphetamine uh, can get into the vesicles and actually poisons a sodium uh, hydrogen uh, ATPase and alkalinizes the vesicle, which makes it leaky. So essentially this nice sac 
of norepi becomes leaky and starts leaking it out into the cell. And that, along with the uh, transporter, increases the extracellular norepi. And so you get a nice surge of dopamine and norepi, which is a part of your body's fight-or-flight response, and so it tends to rev things up. And then if you wanted to link these to specific behaviors, so you can actually see punding. Uh, and punding is uh, the... Uh, it's, been it's, dist- it's the cardioacetoid movement. I mean, some people, you know, like it's weird, repetitive motion that they have. But some people would say it's, oh, crack dancing. So what exactly is the difference between punding and choreoathetoid movements, then? Why not just call it choreoathetoid? Well, because punding sounds cooler. Besides, people would probably misspell choreoathetoid. True. This is true. Although some people misspell punding. And uh, so, but it relates to repetitive, repetitive motions, and you'll see this sometimes in chronic amphetamine users who, you know, they assemble and disassemble, assemble and disassemble objects. Um, like and, all and the electronics in their home. Yes, and they collect things, and, and they just become hoarders, um, which is a great television show. And so you get punding. <laughs> the additional thing is, so that can be from from the neurotransmitters, and then also increased dopamine. And dopamine has been related to schizophrenia, and there's a whole theory behind uh, increased uh, dopamine levels causing the positive symptoms in schizophrenia, which is a gross oversimplification. But So some of the psychotic symptoms that you see in these patients can be from the serotonin effects, but can also be from the dopaminergic effects. And then the modern derivatives uh, have also affect the uh, serotonergic NMDA receptors, which is kind of what you get with ecstasy. And so which is one of the reasons why an amphetamine high is different than an ecstasy high. And, you know, one of the other things it affects is, <clears throat> I guess, a sense of, you know, it's anorexia. Uh, you know, like not only a sense of hunger, but also a sense of thirst. And one of, the, one of the things that online sources report about individuals who've taken bath salts is that they are very anorexic. They simply do not feel like eating, and simply they just don't feel like drinking anything. Sometimes the experienced user will compel themselves uh, to drink fluids to try and stay hydrated because they know they're going to have insensible losses with it, but other people may not. And this is also what you can often see in in sort of rave gatherings where people are using ecstasy. There's a classic description of people revving themselves up. They sweat a lot. They lose a lot of. They have a lot of insensible losses, and they don't feel like drinking a lot. And they get very dehydrated. They can get hypernatremic, and and they can seize. Um, and then so it's it's really if you look at the structure of this molecule. Uh, it's it's one basic amphetamine molecule, but then as you add different things and different carbons, uh, you can have different effects. And uh, so with the um, with the uh, methyl substitution on the on this alpha carbon, uh, you can you can get sort of the stimulant cardiovascular effects um, and the anorexic effects that we were talking about in some of the molecules, such as phentermine, which has kind of a larger substitution substitution group on that molecule. You'll see more anorexia but less cardiovascular effects, although still some cardiovascular effects, which is one of the reasons why fenfen is is not good for really anyone. Um, is diet and exercise, people. Diet and exercise. And uh, these molecules tend to be very lipophilic, so they cross into the blood-brain barrier very easily. And unlike uh, norepi and dopamine, they're not broken down by the traditional mechanisms. Traditionally, MAOs and other enzymes help to cleave and break down the uh, norepi and dopa, uh, but these are not broken down by them. And they're renally and hepatically cleared, but if you repeatedly dose, then you can get 
prolonged side effects. And this is one of the big issues in general. With any kind of drug, repeated dosing and increase the dosing changes the kinetics of the drug. And so a drug that might normally last hours can then last days. And with increased usage, you'll see tolerance. And so a lot of people are having to use more and more and more of this. And even on the website, on Arrowhead and some other uh, websites, there's been some description of sort of repetitive dosing and binging. Yeah, even to the point where users will say, I want to take more. And the sitters who are with them say, no, you shouldn't take it. And, you know, the, the compulsion to take more is so strong is they continue, they continue to redose time after time after time. It's fascinating to read. So what do you do to treat people who are taking basalts? So with this woman, uh, we initially uh, tried pretty much what we try with anyone with a toxicologic-related agitation. So she got supportive care, she got um, uh, fluids, and she got benzodiazepines just just to help calm her down. Now, that benzodiazepines don't always work horribly well with amphetamines just because of the way that they work on the nerve transmission in the cell. They can they can help they they help increase chloride channels and they help decrease. Um, depolarization over all of the cell, but they don't always work great for amphetamines. And with these patients, a lot of times they also have this dopaminergic surge, which is kind of causing the psychosis and the paranoia and some of the agitation. And and so we give them antipsychotics. And so it's one of the reasons why people love to give, you know, five and two. And so giving haloperidol or another antipsychotic along with this can also be effective in sedating the patients and reducing some of the psychotic features. Uh, and then that supportive care is continued until the effects of the medication wear off. Normally, these medications will kick in, if, especially if they inhale it, maybe within 30 minutes, but they can last a few hours. But if they've been taking huge doses or repetitive doses, that can last for days. So for this particular patient, we treated her. She got multiple rounds of medications to get her sedated, and then she finally had to be admitted for observation um, just because she didn't clear within that magical six-hour window. And do you know where the magical six-hour window seems to come from? Um, I think it's as much a historical artifact as anything else. It's kind of a, it's kind of a poor construct in a modern emergency department because I don't know any busy emergency department that can afford to have a bed sitting six hours just waiting for something to happen before you make your next decision point. So I, I think it's an artifact of you know, like older emergency medicine practice and. Yeah, candidly, nowadays, I think you need to arrive at a decision a little bit sooner than that. Either they get sedated or admitted more rapidly, or they're in a condition where a brief observation period without needing to do much to the patient in terms of correction of vital signs, in terms of administration of supportive care, administration of uh, agents for chemical control. If you don't need to do those things, then maybe you can dispo them rapidly from the ED. But you know, I don't know. The six-hour six window has never made a whole lot of sense. What about just sending them to the CDU? A, an observation unit? Um, you know, it depends on the observation unit. The observation units, you know, each one has different criteria for bringing patients into them. And, you know, like if they're staffed by somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience in terms of managing a, a person who could potentially get wildly agitated or they have poor nursing, uh, poor nursing staffing, then it may be not that wise a thing to do. For my money, they either get admitted pretty rapidly, and I think it's going to be obvious. Somebody who needs a lot of sedatives is, is going to be a candidate for early admission, or they can be discharged after a fairly brief observation period, and they'll be pretty obvious, too. They'll be looking, they may be a little bit, a little bit ramped up, but they're not going to be wildly agitated. And the other thing about observation units is I think we often talk about observation units or, or sort of, you know, for patients 
But these are always patients that are at high risk for other injuries. They, they often sometimes have occult traumatic injuries because they haven't been making good decisions. They often have comorbid ingestions with alcohol or other drugs. And so these are the patients that, you know, everyone just says, oh, they're drunk, or finally we got them sedated. And, and then after six or seven hours, somebody checks on them and you find that, you know, they're, they're not, they're no longer conscious. And so they're at risk for, um, a lot of, a lot of badness. So I was thinking, Matt, you know, it seems like that it we have a lot of laws and about amphetamines and and specifically not being able to take them at will. So how is it that people can get these bath salts over the internet? And also, are these bath salts like the kind of bath salts you can actually use in a bath? I'm sure that you probably could use them in a bath. I don't know that you would want to. You might um, you might scratch your skin off. You might scratch your skin off. This is true. <laughs> this is this is true. I'm not going to ask how you know that. But they don't work like bath salts. And actually, I, can't, I have to be honest with you, I don't know how bath salts work. I don't know that they do work. I don't know about how bath salts work. I have never taken a bath and said that it needed salt. But they are different than traditional <laughs> what, bath salts. What did it need? <laughs> if somebody could explain to me the purpose of bath salts, the normal bath salts, that would be helpful. Bath Look salts. at me, you guys. I don't use bath salts. <laughs> So um, these are different than bath salts. And the main reason they're sold as bath salts is is because it's sort of the kooky way our, our laws work. And on these packages, uh, which you can find after you buy them online or buy them in different head shops and things, it will say very, very clearly, not for human ingestion, which to most people tells them to ingest it. Um, and so because it's not for human ingestion, it's not classified as um, as a drug. Uh, because you're not supposed to eat it or drink it, and thus it's not regulated by the same laws that apply to drugs. Um, it's it's just yet another way how someone has found a loophole in the current current laws and is exploiting that. Just an update: since this podcast segment was recorded, the FDA has used its emergency powers to schedule the chemical components in bath salts, effectively making them illegal for the next 12 months. That is still temporary, though, until Congress can evaluate and possibly pass legislation to uh, make them illegal, or the FDA makes a final decision on the matter. Uh, and once that's passed, I, they'll probably leave the door open for just adding another ethyl group and calling it something else. And Yeah, or, I mean, you can call it bath salts, but they may not call it bath salts at all. Like in the western states, Arizona, New Mexico, the jewelry cleaner, products are now beginning to appear. They contain a compound called nafarone, which is, once again, another analog of a phenethylamine, which is going to have stimulant, hallucinogenic, noradrenergic, dopaminergic effect. So you change the substitution, you change the name, and you just start the process all over again. Yeah, we just can't, I guess the government just can't keep up with the creative chemists, as you call them. Yeah, there's a, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of resources out there that people can can look to to gain guidance on what to try next. There's a fantastic book called Pikal, P-I-K-H-A-L. Phenethyl- I've read that. <laughs> I'm sure you have. <laughs> uh, phenethylamines I've known and loved and just want to say that you know, no one here has any sort of financial relationship or draws any sort of profit from uh, from talking about this book. But it's um, it's it's one it's a book and then a sequel, if you can believe it, of several hundred different phenethylamines with their synthetic strategies for making them, the way to purify them, what it should look like, what its physical chemistry, what its physical properties should be, if it's something that you intend to use on yourself, what you can reasonably expect to experience, and other interesting effects for the. Uh, for the discriminating chemist. 
Well, I think that was a, a pretty good discussion of, uh, of a novel agent that we're starting to see in the emergency department and that I think we're all going to see more and more of. And it's just kind of the, the rule of toxicology and emergency medicine that as soon as we figure something out and then how to treat it, people come up with uh, something else to inject or take or ingest. And then they put it online and their friends do the same thing. So uh, just another part of the job. Thinking that you're cleaning out your bag, maybe cleaning out your sink shit. If you call with this shit, you don't get no ticket that fast. So I will kick your ass straight to the asphalt. DEA don't know, but Dr. Rise does. This is an epidemic waiting to pop off. Ass off, and new age, hallucinogen, blue silk, tranquility, white light in the course, white horse, every wave of tickets. Next up. Our very own Scott Glazier will be giving us a Tox Pearl, just a handy bit of information that might help you the next time you see an overdose or ingestion. Hello, you Tox fans out there. My name is Scott Glazier. I'm one of the second-year residents at UMass, here to talk about patients who come in with a really slow heart rate. So you're working a shift. Patient comes in, slow heart rate, 30s and 40s, known ingestion. What do you got to think about? There's four major drugs and drug types that you need to have in the back of your mind. A beta blocker, a calcium channel blocker, digitalis, and clonidine. Each one has its own little hints that point you in the right direction on which you should be thinking about, and then you can direct your treatment the correct way. Patient comes in, they have a slow heart rate, but they also seem like they may have taken an opiate. They have very pinpoint pupils, they're not breathing, gotta think of clonidine. Patient comes in, and you get an EKG, quick, easy test, you see scooping of the QT segment, digitalis. Patient comes in, slow heart rate, you get a quick finger stick, very high, sugar, think calcium channel blocker. Normal or low, most likely could be a beta blocker. Your treatment's going to depend on each thing. So when they come in, slow heart rate, quick EKG, quick finger stick, do your physical exam. You should be able to put yourself in the right direction to get the best and optimal treatment for your patient. I'm Scott Glazier, here for Talks Talk. So this next segment is uh, something we're calling Talks in the News, and it's just every so often I read the newspaper or watch television and I see an interesting story that really is talks related you know, think Michael Jackson, Heath Ledger. And I was reading uh, the Chicago Tribune had a story the other day about a gentleman who was trying to kill his wife, and he was trying to do it in a, in a very novel way. And essentially he was buying tetrodotoxin online for the sole purpose of killing his wife. I didn't know you could buy tetrodotoxin online. Well, it's not as readily available as bath salts, but essentially it can be bought for research purposes. And so he was masquerading as a research physician, as a doctor, and was ordering huge amounts of tetrodotoxin. And I think the story said that he ordered you know, almost 100 milligrams of tetrodotoxin, which is interesting. Oh, that's a lot of tetrodotoxin. <laughs> I mean, the, the LD50 for a mouse is something like 334 micrograms per kilogram. Right, although I don't or, know how... Oral, oral dose. Oral dosing, although, I, to be honest, I have no idea how big his wife was. But at, at about, a, what, a 70-kilo person, that would be approximately 20-something milligrams, and he wanted 98 milligrams. I think he might have been planning on getting remarried. Or, or, he had, or just taking a belt-and-suspender approach. What's a belt-and-suspender approach? <laughs> you're making sure the job's done. <laughs> oh, it's Murphy's Law. Whenever you're trying to poison your wife, you always have to assume that whatever can go wrong will go wrong. 
and so maybe you need to redose it. But so historically, tetrodotoxin is interesting. The first description of it is actually uh, uh, Captain Cook on the vessel. They describe catching a fish, essentially a puffer fish, and and actually just to just to refresh everyone's memory, so tetrodotoxin is found in the puffer fish, and it's the kind of sushi that when you eat it, if it's prepared from the puffer fish, you want prepared by a very experienced, sort of venerated, older Asian man, fugu um, chef, a fugu chef. Yes, and the reason for that is the toxin is located within the organ, specifically the liver of the fish, and so the sushi is prepared in such a way that you don't eat the lethal organs of the fish. I don't know why sushi would taste better when there's a risk of death, but apparently it does. It's fun. You're supposed to get a certain amount of circumoral numbness after you eat it, or numbness on your tongue from uh, inhibition of the sodium neurotransmission. I guess that's supposed to accentuate the experience. That's actually the neurotoxic effects. When you continue that to the extreme, if you take a hefty dose of it, you continue to get the sodium channel blockade. And what it does is it blocks the sodium channels on the uh, nerves and myocytes and prevents the action potentials. And so you get paralysis, and you get paralysis of the skeletal muscles and the diaphragmatic muscle. And so you slowly suffocate to death, which has got to be a really horrific way to die. This this was first described uh, by, by Captain Cook on the voyage, and essentially his men found these fish, and they chopped them up and ate them, and fed the remains to the pigs. And and the men got these uh, sweaty and weak and, and perioral sensation for about a day, and they all recovered, uh, but they had fed the remains to the pigs, and the pigs the next day were all dead. And they were probably dead because they had eaten the pure organs that contained the pure tetrodotoxin and also had gotten a, so a hefty dose and a lethal dose. And I guess this is maybe gave the man the idea for this with his with his wife. But he tried to order it online, tried to order I think, 98 milligrams online and, and was caught. And so recently the Chicago, Chicago Tribune was saying that he, he pled guilty to, uh, to murder. He could not come up with a justifiable reason for ordering that much tetrodotoxin. Yeah, but tell them the good part about what his wife did. Oh, yes. So everyone involved, the wife apparently is anonymous, but uh, apparently observers in the courtroom saw the wife mouthing to him, uh, I still love you, which I have to say, in an age where people doubt marriage and everyone's breaking apart every day, that's that's love right there. That's love. Yeah. To stand by somebody who's wanting to feed you tetrodotoxin is maybe a little insanity. Just a little. And that's your bit of Talks in the News. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Talks Talk. Thanks for joining us. Join us next time when we'll be talking about excited delirium. You can visit us on the web at TalksTalk.org. That's T-O-X-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. TalksTalk is a production of the Division of Toxicology in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Massachusetts. This is Matt Zuckerman signing off. Mm-hmm.